0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. If you want to go ahead and take out your Bibles, your apps, whatever it is you use to follow along and open up to chapter 11, Uh, If you do not own a Bible, we have blue paperback Bibles in the seats in front of you that you can take out and use to follow along, and those are actually our gift to you, and so we would please ask that you would take those and and read it. We have some ones that might be in better condition out, uh, out in the lobby for you as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll be beginning in verse 17, and I want to remind us this morning as we turn to God's Word that what we are about to hear is an event. It's an event that billions of people in our world do not have the privilege of hearing this morning. And so let's turn our hearts and our minds and our full attention now to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your wisdom and your discernment and your kindness upon us. And we pray principally as we study this text about the Lord's Supper, and then we come to the table together, that you would exalt Christ before us, his work and his salvation. We pray this in his name, amen. In our family, we have an unspoken ritual about when the Christmas season begins. It really started more out of convenience than anything else. Uh, The first year that we were married, we lived in a small apartment, and one night, the week of Thanksgiving, a few days prior to, we walked over to Home Depot, and we were pleasantly surprised to find out that nobody was thinking about Christmas trees yet. And so we had the best of customer service, you know, like just they cut the trees for us and, and all of that. And so that's kind of become our unspoken ritual of when does Christmas start in the Hein household? And so we leave it up after, until after Thanksgiving Day and then we decorate it. And that's sort of the initiation of when that begins. For the sake of sermon illustration, I'm breaking my family ritual to use a Christmas illustration to open up our text this morning. Many of you are familiar with the classic Dr. Seuss story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. In the children's book, the Grinch is this angry grump that lives up in the mountains and who steals Christmas from the town of Whoville. But of course, even when all their outward displays of presents and decorations are taken away, the Grinch learns the lesson. He just can't steal the Christmas spirit. And so his heart is melted and it grows 10 times bigger and the book ends happily with the Grinch and the town of Whoville celebrating their Who feast together. Now in the book version, the the story is very one-sided and we find that the Grinch is very much the villain. But the Whos of Whoville are the example of love and charity. But the movie version... I'm not talking the new one that just came out. We're going to ignore that one. The Jim Carrey one, the, the classic. <laughs> the Grinch is still the Grinch, of course. But the Who's of Whoville aren't so innocent, are they? For under the shiny veneer of all their presents and their decorations and their Christmas rituals, lied a people who were shallow and empty far more concerned with their outward appearances and the show show of it all competing with one another than they were about actually loving each other during the Christmas season. It wasn't until they suffered the great loss of all their decorations and all their presents and all their gifts, and of course the courage of little Cindy Lou Who, where they finally learned what Christmas was really about. We could ask the question, how did the Who's of Whoville get so off track? How did they get so off track? Well, maybe we could say they just got too comfortable with themselves. Too comfortable with their traditions and their rituals. And it slowly just became a show of competition and of putting each other down rather than an opportunity to love each other. We could ask a very similar question about the Corinthian church. And arrive at a very similar answer. How did the Corinthian church get so off track? The passage we're studying this morning should be one that shocks us. To see that there is a great danger in living the Christian life in a way that just goes through the motions. Entirely too comfortable with just the way we do things. All the while ignoring the seriousness of our sin. One commentator remarks that we are fortunate the Corinthian church was so messed up. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all these helpful instructions that Paul lays out for us in 1 Corinthians. It's a bit crass, but he's not wrong. Our text reveals to us a church that was so comfortable in their sin that they were grossly abusing the Lord's Supper, one of the most sacred acts that we have the privilege of participating in. But I'm excited to get into this text with you this morning because I think what we're going to see is just how special the Lord's Supper really is and how it has the ability to bring about renewal in our hearts and in the life of our church. So our text this morning has three pretty neat sections that give us three pretty neat points. So I'll go through this uh, point by point. The first point is wrongful participation in the Lord's Supper. Secondly, rightfully remembering the Lord's Supper. And then finally, we'll see some helpful practices for taking the Lord's Supper. So, wrongful participation in the Lord's Supper. Let's get after it. I'm looking at verses 17 to 34, uh, specifically 17 to uh, 22. Paul uses the expression, when you come together. Three times in this opening section. He uses it another two times in the close of this passage. When you come together, as we have seen throughout this study of 1 Corinthians, Paul is very concerned about what the church looks like when they come together and interact with each other. We've seen how he's addressed these very practical problems of sex and sexuality, marriage and divorce, being a life of being single and how to cultivate that in a godly way and protecting the consciousness of others and all of these things. One of the issues that presents itself at the beginning of the letter and he continues to address throughout the letter and we see here is this issue of divisions in the church. These schisms that have taken place. And I want you to see just how seriously Paul takes this issue. Look at the weight that he gives it in verse 17. He actually says, Your divisions are so bad that when you come together it is not for the better but actually better For the worse, because of how badly you treat each other. One of the things that has surprised me in studying 1 Corinthians in closer detail is how often Paul is interacting with the popular philosophy and cultural teachings of his day. And I've shared some of those with you in the time that I've been up here, and I've done that for a couple of reasons. First, because I think there are some lessons in there about how we can interact with culture today. How do we affirm? culture, and challenge culture. But second, and maybe more importantly for our, our reading this morning, is I think it's good for us to try and hear Scripture the way the original audience would have heard it, right? I think that's good for us, to allow it to strike us in a way it would have struck the original audience. So the language that Paul is using here in these opening few verses is very intentional, And it would have been very familiar in the ears of the people in the audience, likely those who are better educated, the more wealthy and elite folks who he's rebuking in this text. Because Paul is actually pulling from teachings that can be traced back to Aristotle. So let me read this quote here for you. Um, I think you'll see how Paul is applying it here. And if you're thinking ahead, you'll see how he's going to begin to use this same idea in chapter 12 as well. So here's the quote from Aristotle. He said this, For it is possible that the many, though not individually good men, yet when they come together may be better. Not individually, but collectively. And when they have come together, just as the multitude becomes a single man with many feet and many hands and many senses, so also it becomes one personality. We see this language of when they come together, they may be better. Why is this important? Because there's a sense in which Paul is saying, everybody knows that we are supposed to be better together. Everybody knows that. Except you. Except you. Look at what you're doing. Sometimes, The world rebukes the church, doesn't it? And this is one of those times. They ought to be better together in living in a way that rebukes the world. But instead, it's the exact opposite. So what exactly is happening when the Corinthian church came together? Well, the first thing to take note of is that at this time, when Christians gathered for the Lord's Supper, it was a lot like what we think of in a potluck meal. Everybody brought their food. It was supposed to be to share with each other. They would have begun the meal with the breaking of the bread. They would have shared their food and their drink together in a meal and they would have concluded with the wine. And that was the celebration of the supper together. The intention was to be this meal, this this love feast of fellowshipping together and sharing what they had. That's not at all what was happening in Corinth. The problem is summarized in verses 20 to 22. The abuses are so bad that Paul said this isn't the Lord's Supper at all that you're eating. Because instead of sharing with each other, everyone is just eating their own food that they brought. Which meant the richer Christians were eating their own food and the poorer Christians who were unable to contribute to the meal were going hungry. To our modern ears, I think this is a pretty unbelievable problem to have, isn't it? Like, that's, that's pretty bad. It's hard for us to imagine a scenario where Christians in a community actually believed that these kinds of actions were justified. But to the first century Corinthians, this was just entirely normal. This is just what you did. The homes that these people were meeting in would have had a small dining room. Likely it could have sat about nine or ten people. And in order to have a home like this, in order to seat this many people, they would have had to have been wealthier members in the community. And so you had this dining room that could hold nine or ten people. And then you would have an atrium. And in the atrium kind of is where everybody else would sit. 30, 40, maybe 50 people could sit in there. And so the way that these dinners would go, sort of in the culture, was the wealthier, richer, more privileged folks who were invited to be in the ten, the, the lucky ten, would sit in the dining room and everyone else would sit in the atrium. And it was very common practice to divide food and drink up by class. It's very common practice to do this. We have examples of this, and we can just read records of people bragging about their hospitality, all the while giving the good food to the rich folks and letting the poorer folks in the atrium get the scraps. And we may think that this sounds unfair. But it's very easy to be blind to cultural sins when the cultural sins favor us, isn't it? It's kind of like how um, it works when you, when you ride an airplane often. Uh, if you're anything like me, you end up riding in the back of the airplane all the time by the laboratories and it smells like a laboratory and the engines are right there and it's loud and you're like, you have to pay 20 bucks for a bag of peanuts and you're sitting there just grumbling the whole time like why do the first class people get to be treated so much better? Like they get behind the curtain, the big seats, the good food and all of that, right? And so we grumble. And then, one day, we're the lucky one that gets the free upgrade. Don't mind if I do, right? We don't think anything of it when it benefits us. And so, by continuing to live unchecked lives in a culture which exploited and snubbed the poorer members of the community, the wealthier Christians had become completely desensitized to the effects of their sin. I think this is one of the reasons why it's important for us often to reflect on the power that culture has on us. If we don't reflect on that deeply and often, we're going to be blind, maybe just to the very subtle ways that we sin against others. Because this is exactly what sin does to us, isn't it? It numbs us to its effects and its consequences. I've had three surgeries on my left arm. On the second one, they moved the funny bone nerve uh, to the other side of my elbow. And so now if I take my finger and I rub it along my arm, I can feel this. I can't feel this. I can feel this. I can't feel this. My nerve was getting pinched, and so in order to relieve the pain, they had to move it. And the consequence is now there's no feeling left. Sin has very similar effects on the human heart. When we give into to it, it, it slowly, our pride and our lust and our private addictions and sins that no one knows about, it numbs us to the point that we can't feel anymore. We can't feel what we can't feel. And so when left unchecked, these subtle sins can wreak havoc and grow like weeds among the harvest of God's people. But now notice how Paul addresses this situation. In order to address the problems that were happening in the participation in the Lord's Supper, he shows us how to rightly remember the Lord's Supper. Number two, looking at verses 23 to 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, gave us this gift, this meal, which we now call The Lord's Supper. The only other time that Paul uses this language of directly receiving something from the Lord and delivering it to us is when he speaks about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1. So the fact that Paul is using this language here should alert us to the importance and the significance of this supper that we have the privilege of partaking in. He gave it to his people on the night when he was betrayed by Judas, then left to be abandoned by his followers. Have you ever paused? Have you ever paused to consider the depth of love and mercy that we can see at this table? That on the night when he knew we would betray him, He gave himself up for us. John Flavel, a 17th century English Puritan, he compares the Lord's Supper to a dying husband who leaves behind a portrait of himself for his wife to remember him by. It's a sweet image. John Mitchell and I had the privilege of taking communion to Margaret Davis on Friday. Those of you who don't know Margaret, she's a woman in her 90s living in a nursing home. Been widowed for nearly five decades, I believe. She keeps a picture of her husband on her bedside. She knows, and she's a lesson to us all, of what it means to look to a portrait to remember someone by as she waits to see him again. Behold, the four-dimensional portrait that Christ wants us to remember him by. With our sight, with our taste, with our touch. A real body broken, real blood shed. It ought to arrest our senses and more importantly, It ought to arrest our hearts. Clearly, the Corinthian church had completely missed the boat. They had failed to see, as Bruce Wiley was pointing out to me this week, he said, they had failed to see not only what the supper was, but whose it was. And the effects it was supposed to have on the community. I think it would be good for us to stop here and just reflect for a moment on the power of ritual. It's significant that in his parting hours, Jesus left us a ritual, a community ritual that is to be practiced and celebrated often. We all have rituals. Some are private, some are communal. Brushing your teeth every night is a solid private ritual that to put into place. I would recommend it for each of you. Getting your Christmas tree with your family the week of Thanksgiving is a ritual that marks the beginning of the Christmas celebration for your household. Singing the national anthem at a sports game is a ritual that's intended to bring the citizens of our country together under our shared ideals. You get the point. Charles Vogel, he's an author, who has done a lot of work studying the social and religious communities throughout history. And he's written this book that's really quite excellent. It's a short little book called The Art of Community. And after studying the strongest communities throughout the history of the world, in different cultural moments, he's arrived at seven principles that he says, seven principles that the strongest communities have that keep them together. So, for example, the first principle is the initiation principle. Meaning a strong sense of how an individual becomes a part of the group. Okay, so in the church, that means making a public confession of faith in your local congregation and being baptized if you haven't already. That's the initiation into the church. It means clear next steps on how to be involved in our church and to take a part of our community. Well, another one of these rituals that or principles that he identifies is the rituals principle. And he says that every healthy community ought to have rituals which bring them together. And he shows how the strongest rituals in community are those that provide a sense of meaning by connecting an individual to the past and also a sense of hope for the future. By connecting with a significant past and a hope for the future, the best kinds of rituals give us a sense of stability and meaning in our lives here in the present, So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we ought to be incredibly grateful that Jesus has left us with such a ritual that has the power to bring about life in our community. We participate in the Lord's Supper as a way to remember what he has done for us. We also participate in the Lord's Supper, Paul says, as a way of proclaiming Jesus until he comes again, a hope that he's coming back for us, and he's going to set everything right. J. Todd Billings, he's quoted in your bulletin this morning. He's one of just one theologian in a long line of theologians in church history who has helped us to see the importance of our habits in reorienting our hearts after the things of God. You see, it's not enough to simply say no to the things of the world, We need to learn how to say yes to the things of God. We can't simply say no to our current world and our current consumer culture. We need to accept an invitation into a better world. Through better practices, through better symbols, through better rituals. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to participate in the new world. Complete with new meaning and a better way of being. And this is one of the reasons why it ought to be practiced often, just like the daily collection of manna in the wilderness reminded the Israelites to be dependent on God. Frequent participation in the Lord's Supper reorients our hearts for Jesus. I wear an Apple Watch. It was a graduation gift to me when I graduated seminary. It's kind of just a glorified Fitbit, I've realized. Uh, It's really not uh, everything it's cracked up to be. It's helpful, though, for reminding me of when I need to stand up, you know, been sitting for too long. It's helpful in reminding me to just, you know, go on that five-minute walk and you can get your 30 minutes of exercise in today. Maybe even to take a break, to breathe, and to reflect, right? It will even alert me if my pulse all of a sudden spikes in an unexplained way. But one thing it cannot do is tell me when my heart has gone astray and fled the love of God for the things of this world. But this meal can. This meal can and does do that for us. Which is why we need to come to the table as often as we are able and rightly remember what Jesus has done for us. And so having rightly remembered the Lord's Supper, Paul is now ready to close with some helpful practices for taking the Lord's Supper. Helpful practices for taking the Lord's Supper. I'm looking in verses 27 to 34. And so I'm just going to conclude here with two uh, important points of application for us. One is more personal and then one is more relational. So first, How ought we to personally apply the warnings we see in verses 27 to 32? These strong warnings that we see here. Paul says that in light of these things that I have said, we ought to examine ourselves when coming to the Lord's Supper. The warning here is strong as he indicates that because of the present sins in the community, people are sick and they're even dying. The Bible's pretty clear about this. Not every sickness and disease is caused by sin, nor are we able to know which sicknesses and diseases in our community are caused by sin. But some are. Which is why James says in James chapter 5, the church ought to be a place of confessing sin to one another. So in those cases where sickness is caused by sin, we may be healed. However, I think some of us, in our shame over present sin, we can be prone to misapplying these verses. Shame is a powerfully negative emotion. Shame is this feeling, as author Dr. Brene Brown says, it's this feeling that washes over you, that convinces you you're not worthy. That's what shame does. It wreaks havoc in our lives. And so when we feel shameful about present sin or something that has happened in our life, we convince ourselves that we are unworthy to take the supper. And out of some kind of self-inflicted punishment, maybe it ought to be best for me to refrain from taking it. But this is not what the scripture teaches, friends. This meal is for repentant and believing sinners, not sinless, perfect Christians. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Howard Griffith, a man who I love dearly, has really helped me understand the Bible's teaching about this. In his excellent book, Spreading the Feast, he shows how the emphasis of examining ourselves for the supper is not on danger and warning, but on joy and thanksgiving. It is true that Jesus required obedience from his followers and reconciled relationships within the church. That's absolutely true. But he never says that perfect obedience and perfect relationships are the prerequisite for taking the Lord's Supper. He never says that. And you're not going to find any place in the epistles that say that either. The emphasis that Paul has here, we see it in verse 28, is he says, examine yourself, then eat and drink. Literally, literally it says, let a person examine him or herself, thus eat. The examination is to be a period of encouragement as we look inside of ourselves and find the faith to feed on Christ. It's a time for our hearts to be stirred, Jesus not filled with self-condemnation. In cases of church discipline, the elders of the church have the authority and the responsibility to exclude individuals from the table. That is how we apply the warning that we see here in this section When the elders and pastors of a church discover that a member of the church is living a life of unrepentant sin, meaning a life of sin that they are not sorrowful over in the least, the elders may decide to exclude an individual from participation in the supper. But this is not punishment. It is a warning intended to lead the individual back through repentance to table fellowship, to lead them back to dining and communing with Christ here at the table. But here's what this means for us individually. And I mean this in the strongest form of encouragement that I can. No individual Christian ought to take it upon themselves individually to exclude themselves from the table. It's not your job. Christ commands us to come to the table. If you are concerned with unrepentant sin in your life, then number one, it's likely that you're probably not unrepentant if you're concerned that it exists. But if you are concerned, come to the elders and let them walk, through, walk you through discerning the best course of action for you. But don't starve yourself from this table. I have some kind of punishment. That's not grace. That's karma. That's legalism. That's not what we see happening at the table. If you feel guilt and shame over sin that you just can't seem to kick, if you feel sorrow over the way that you've treated a friend or a loved one, Jesus does not say to you at this table, I will not feed you. He says, take and eat and drink. This is my body and my blood, which is for you. If your faith is weak, on account of a season of dark depression and anxiety, Jesus does not say, shame on you. He invites you to come and be strengthened at his table. This is one area where the Westminster Catechisms are extremely helpful for us in thinking through this issue. These are documents that came out of the Reformed uh, Reformation period and that we believe rightly summarize the Bible's teaching on major issues of doctrine. So question 96 of the Shorter Catechism asks this question, what is required to worthily receive the Lord's Supper? How How can we worthily receive the Lord's Supper? Here's the answer. Here's the five things that the Catechism says. Number one, knowledge to discern the Lord's body, which means do you understand the saving work of Jesus Christ? Number two, faith in Christ. And as Jesus says, faith as small as a mustard seed will do. Number three, repentance, meaning that there is sorrow over sin and remorse for sin in your life. Number four, a love for Jesus Christ. And number five, new obedience, meaning a desire to turn from your sin and pursue Jesus Christ in faithful obedience. These five things and these five things alone are the prerequisites for coming to this two-course meal. It does not say sinlessness, nor does it say perfect relationships. And so if these things are present in your heart, then it is your duty and your privilege to come and to dine with Christ at His table And this is why we use this language in our invitation to the table. We invite all baptized and professing Christians who are members in good standing of a Bible-believing church, which just means you're a professing Christian, not under church discipline. It is a warm invitation of joy and thanksgiving to come and feast at the table, not an invitation of danger and fear. Christ promises to feed His people and to strengthen us to carry out his will. And so if we exclude ourselves from the table out of some form of self inflicted punishment, we're starving ourselves of the nourishment that Christ has promised He will give to us. So that's the first application. The second one is quick, the second one is more relational. I'm looking at verses 33 and 34. Paul says, if you really understand this meal, you will see it as an opportunity to wait on each other. Or it could be translated, to share with one another. You see, this goes back to the power of ritual. Jesus has left us with a meal that can bring about new life in our churches and in our our lives every time we celebrate it. We come to this table as a people who are poor and who are weak and who are needy. And when we feed, we are strengthened to love each other more and more. This is a table of love. It's a love feast. And when we receive the love of Christ, we are nourished to then extend it to other people. This sounds nice. Except people are crazy. Every one of us, we're all crazy. And we're difficult. But when we come to this table, we remember that despite how crazy each of us are, how difficult we all are, how filled with sin we sometimes can be, Christ loves us and promises to feed us at His table. As we feed on Him, we are strengthened to love others as we have been loved. When we feed on Christ, He strengthens us to love others, to forgive and to repair broken relationships and even broken marriages. When we participate in this meal, it's the perfect opportunity to go and approach someone you have wronged in the church and apologize, to pick up the phone and call a friend and ask for their forgiveness, or to turn to your spouse and apologize for what was said on Saturday night. That is the transforming power that the supper can work in a church community every time it is celebrated. And so this morning, I invite all of you who have called upon the name of Christ as Savior to examine yourselves and seeing the gift of faith that he has given to you and the love that he has given to you for himself, I invite you to come to this table and to receive the body and blood of of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, some of you in this room may not yet have come to a place of calling on Christ for your salvation. Perhaps you're still struggling with questions about his claims or perhaps why you need a Savior or about maybe something much more personal, such as suffering that you've experienced in your life. I want you to know this is a safe place to ask those questions. But instead of coming to this table this morning to eat and drink, I want to ask you instead to sit and consider this portrait that Jesus has left of himself for us. Come To Christ, this Savior whose body was broken, that you might believe in Him and receive His forgiveness. He will meet you and embrace you in His kindness and in His love. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, please just ask anyone that you've seen up here up front this morning. To those who believe, come this morning to take and eat. Come because Christ commands and he invites you, not because you have made yourself worthy, not because you are perfect. Come because your loving Savior calls you to be nourished. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that through the Corinthian church and letter that Paul has written to them, we can see these very present applications for our lives in our church today. I pray this morning for those in this room who may be feeling a spirit of shame and guilt or doubt, that you would call them to yourself this morning and invite them and help them to see that their shame is not a barrier to receiving this meal this morning and to dining with our Savior. Thank you, Lord. Be with us now, we pray. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.